Welcome to the Future of Agriculture podcast, the show that explores the people, companies, and ideas that are shaping the future of agribusiness. Innovation, resourcefulness, and collaboration are essential for feeding a growing population, and we believe the agriculture industry is up for the challenge. Please welcome your host, Tim Hammerich. Howdy, my name is Tim Hamrich. I'm an agribusiness recruiter and the founder of AgGrad. Thank you so much for downloading another episode of the Future of Agriculture podcast. And thank you to those specifically who have reached out over the last week about uh, our episode with Hope Fleck about ag education. What should our role be in supporting and developing ag education? All of us have a stake in this process, whether it be as a consumer or as someone who works in agribusiness and wants to see agribusiness continue to attract talent, which is where I am, uh, or producers of agriculture that just either want people to better understand their product or want employees themselves down the road. It was interesting, uh, along with the conversation on Twitter, we ran a poll about where do you stand on if you could only support one, either ag literacy, teaching people about where their food comes from, or workforce development, uh, developing the next group of people to work in agriculture and agribusiness, where would you support? Where do you lean? Obviously, both are important. We're not saying only one can happen. But uh, I was kind of interested to find out that 70% of those that responded said ag literacy, teaching people about where their food comes from, is more important. Uh, heard reasons behind that, everything from, well, that's where the majority, that's what the majority of people need. They're not going to work in agriculture, so that, but they need to know where their food comes from. Uh, to if you can get them literate about agriculture, then maybe you can start to have the conversation about where they work or if they want to work in this industry. But first, they need to have literacy. So anyway, great uh, responses there. Very, very much enjoyed the conversation on Twitter and would love to keep it going. For those of you who want to join the conversation, I am at Tim Hammerich. Uh, important in any sort of case study like this in this mini series we're in ag education to have success stories. What is it that we are all striving for? Because we could talk about workforce development and ag literacy all we want, but if we're not talking about the same end result, if we're not talking about the same success, then we're wasting our time because you're having one conversation and I'm having another. So I wanted to bring this guest on today anyway, just because I think it's a fascinating story and one that you'll enjoy. Also, though, I do think it fits in this context of this ag education miniseries for this reason. This is a group of young millennials just out of college, uh, in fact, just this month out of college, that have decided to take their knowledge of agriculture and their knowledge of social issues in the world and apply one to the other, meaning they are using an agricultural technology to solve real world problems. And that problem has to do with hunger. Kinesol uses dehydration technology that can be used anywhere in the world to make food products last longer so that they don't end up as food waste. Uh, great interview here with Michaela Sullivan on the team. They have uh, an ambitious goal of trying to decrease the amount of food that's wasted in the world, especially where it's needed most. So I think you'll enjoy this. Also, I'd encourage you to listen in the context of this greater ag education uh mini-series we're doing, this greater ag education conversation we're having, because if this is success, if we can develop people who care enough about real social issues and care enough and know enough about agriculture to apply it as a solution, um, imagine what our industry can look like in the future. Enjoyed this interview, and I think you will too. Here is Michaela Sullivan of Kinesol. 
here on the show today, we have Michaela Sullivan, who, according to her LinkedIn profile, is the ringleader of Regal Operations for Kinesol. Michaela, thank you for being here. Yeah, no problem. I'm happy to join. What does that mean, ringleader of Regal Operations? Yeah, so when we started Kinesol, we didn't really want to take the traditional business approach to it. Um, I think that comes from all of us kind of being in that millennial generation. But basically, the ringleader of Regal Operations is I just kind of manage a lot of the internal um, organization within our team and making sure that we're reaching out to partners and making sure that they're getting everything that they need, um, making sure everything's running smoothly. Cool. Well, I I guess... uh I, I gave a little bit of a brief introduction to you before we started here, but maybe in your own words, can you give us just sort of the elevator pitch of what Kinesol is? Yeah, so Kinesol is a specific benefit corporation, and our main focus is to decrease food waste on a global scale. And so by in, to, in order to do that, we launched our first product, which is called the Kinesol Arenda, and that's a small-scale solar-powered food dehydrator with an attached storage component. And right now, we're primarily working in developing countries with aid organizations and subsistence farmers. So instead of the food going to waste, it can be dehydrated using solar energy. Is that right? Exactly. So when we started out, um, we were really focused on this huge problem of food waste and around the world, one third of the food that we produce goes to waste. And so that's costing like a trillion dollars every year. And so by allowing farmers to dehydrate their food, instead of it going to waste, they're able to have access to it year round. They're able to have access to food that is rich in vitamins and nutrients. And we also like to promote our units and our technology as an income generation tool so that they can kind of create their own small business around dehydrating produce and selling it at the market. So it's an additional revenue stream for them as well. And I imagine these are typically small, more subsistence style farmers. Is that right? Exactly. So our technology was designed to fit the needs of a small family in, let's say, sub-Saharan Africa. So most of the families there, they're going to be farming on one to two hectares of land, which is about an acre or so. Um, around there. And so they have a mix of crops. So they might be growing grains, but then they might also have a fruit and vegetable garden. And so we really wanted to focus on those fruits and vegetables that are going to waste because in a lot of these locations, they're also very high in micronutrient deficiencies just because they don't have access to the food. It all comes into season all at once. And then six months down the road, there's no more fresh fruits or vegetables. Wow. Yeah, it sounds like certainly a really worthy cause. Uh, talk to us more about being an SBC, a, a specific benefit corporation. Is that different from a nonprofit? And, and what what are sort of the terms of being an SBC? Yeah, so a specific benefit corporation is different than a nonprofit. So we actually are a for-profit company. But by being a specific benefit corporation, it means that we're legally a social good company. So we're bound by our mission that we set out to. And our specific mission was to decrease food waste. And so everything that we do going forward and as we continue to grow the company, we keep that in mind and we make sure that everything we're doing is progressing towards reaching that goal of seeing a reduction in the food that's going to waste. Um, there are 
organizations like um, Kickstarter or Patagonia that are public benefit corporations. And so theirs is much more of a general um, giving back to the community. They don't necessarily have a specific sector that they have to focus on, but we really wanted to just have something in place that held us accountable to making sure that we were putting people before profits. Interesting. And so is it a longer process to become an SBC than, than like, you know, like an LLC? I did that. My LLC, I think I did with LegalZoom online in, in one afternoon. <laughs> is it a bit of a longer process for SBC? Um, so it's I think it is a little bit longer than uh, an LLC. But if you're just starting out as a company, it's pretty easy to make sure that you have the proper paperwork in order to be a specific benefit corporation. So we're actually based out of Minnesota because Iowa doesn't yet recognize specific benefit corporations. But with that, you have a board of directors. So it's pretty similar to a regular corporation. Um, it's the same tax structure and all of that as well. Very cool. Very cool. Um, so how does a subsistence farmer afford one of your pieces of technology? So we're primarily working with aid organizations or churches or non-governmental organizations that are focused on agriculture or community development in these rural communities abroad. And so it's not actually the subsistence farmer that's purchasing our technology, but it's these aid organizations that have microcredit loan programs in place where the farmer will pay for a portion of it over the course of a year. And by the end of the year, they will have paid it off. So it makes it very affordable to them. Um, some of our other organizations that we're working with do directly just donate them to the community, but we like to make sure that if they are just donating them, there's a lot of educational components that go with that so that the technology is not just arriving there. It's sitting there not getting used. We want to make sure that people are really getting the most out of what um, we're providing them. And this is, I know this is not your target market, so this is a total selfish question, but can you make beef jerky in one of these things? So we've had a lot of people interested in meat dehydration. So right now we're able to dehydrate fruits, vegetables, grains, and insects, and that's primarily our focus. We do have other partners in some Southeast Asian countries that are dehydrating um, small fish and also looking at dehydrating pork. And we actually have some units that we just sent to Brazil where they're going to be doing testing on alligator meat. Hmm. So that'll be really interesting to see. It's just that with dehydrating meat, you kind of run the risk of more food safety concerns because it needs to reach a higher temperature and you have more microbial growth that could occur in the dehydration process. So we just really want to make sure that no one's getting sick. Um, but obviously, once the units are in country, we can't really control what anyone does with them. So it's been interesting to see what they're dehydrating in all the new locations that we're um, sending units to. Because each time we send a unit to a new location, we hear back that, oh, we're dehydrating ginger or we're dehydrating mushrooms. And it's really cool to kind of see that vast array of products that can be dehydrated with this technology. That is really cool because they're adapting it to their own needs. You're not telling them, hey, here's what you should eat because this is better for your society. You're giving them a tool so that they can eat what they want, what they want to eat, what they're used to eating, uh, exactly. which which I can, I can imagine that that would be the only way to do something like this. We've had episodes of this show in the past on uh, entomology. So insects for food as well as on food waste. So you're kind of like bringing a lot of things together here for, for all of us. So I, I'm really, really excited about this. You mentioned the food safety concerns. I mean, even with fruits, vegetables, grains, insects, you're going to have some 
some food safety concern. Once they're dehydrated, where do they go? I mean, the whole purpose of dehydrating them so that they last longer, but how do you make sure you keep them protected from, you know, any pathogens or, or pests or anything like that? Exactly. So with our dehydrators, it has an attached storage component that's right below the dehydrator. And with the storage component, we send mylar bags. And so mylar is the type of material that they use in a lot of like emergency response situations or those prepackaged meals. So it's able to keep out the light oxygen and moisture. So it provides an extra barrier to the dehydrated outputs. So when you put them in the mylar bags, then you can save them for months on end because they're not subject to the humidity levels outside, the sun, um, weather conditions. So it's really a safe place to keep them, allowing them to have that extended shelf life. And, and what would it cost an aid organization? I imagine it, it depends on how many they buy, but a general range for, for one of these units. Yeah. So our units, um, for just the dehydrator, it's 110. And for the dehydrator plus the storage component, it's 130. Okay. Okay. Hmm. Yeah, when you when you think dehydrator, it, that seems actually really reasonable. Uh, and that's um, how does that work? Does it do you deliver you deliver them? I mean, you send them in a container to whatever country they want. Is that how it works? Yeah, so it kind of depends. We've done um, kind of multiple ways, and our focus was really how can we make this as affordable as possible to get it into the hands of as many people who need it um, and that they can actually use it. So right now, we're primarily working with organizations that are based here in the U.S. And so we'll ship it to their headquarters, um, whether it be here in Iowa or in another state, and then they'll take it with them on their next trip abroad. But we do have some partners that are um, smaller NGOs that are in country, and we will then ship units to their location in country. But we've realized over the course of the past year and a half, shipping abroad, you definitely run into a few hurdles with making sure everything arrives there, sometimes mail and in-country is not as reliable or as efficient as it is here in the United States. So those have been a few hurdles that we've had to overcome. But we do like to ship units to partners in-country, and a lot of them typically have limited funding compared to the organizations we're working with here in the United States. So that's why we launched our sponsor unit program. So it's allowing people here in the U.S. who want to support Kinesol's mission to end food waste and help empower a local family to sponsor a portion to a full unit that then will ship to one of our partners in country where they have a family there that could actually use that technology. So you speak like such a seasoned veteran about this stuff, but I know you said you're a millennial and, and I think your whole like founding team is a millennial, are millennial. So talk to us about that. Uh, where did you all, how did this idea come together in, in, amongst the team, the founding team? Yeah. So all of us started out as global resource systems majors at Iowa State University. And so that program really focuses on looking at all of the resources, whether it be economic, social, environmental, and kind of how those all play together to improve development and spur economic progress in communities that are on that scale of um, development. And so we all came together to compete in a competition. It was called the Thought for Food Challenge, and it was a global challenge that was focused on how do we feed our growing population. And so all of us having various technical areas, we really wanted to focus on the food that's already being produced because I think so much of the agriculture sector really focuses on how do we increase outputs. But we already do produce enough food. A lot of it is just access, distribution, preservation. 
those key things are not in place to allow food to be preserved and get to where it needs to go. And so that's kind of how we came up with Kinosol. We came up with dehydration and we continued to build and improve upon methods of dehydration. Dehydration is something that many people already do in country. Um, it's just that a lot of the practices that they use aren't efficient or reliable. So when we've done field testing in country, we've been actually able to see what those dehydration practices look like. And it's typically they'll either lay everything out on the dirt ground or they'll have a tarp or a basket and they just sit it in or they sit it out in the sun for about a week. But that leaves everything exposed to the elements, bugs, pests, all of that. If it starts to rain, they have to quickly cover everything up. And so it's just not efficient and not necessarily a good use of their time. And so that's kind of why we wanted to focus on, okay, how can we improve this traditional method and make it something that's affordable, sustainable, and something that's efficient for people to use. And so we entered the business plan competition and we were able to travel to Portugal and pitch on stage there. And while we didn't win, it kind of gave us that motivation. Okay. So we started this really just for the fun of it. We wanted to see where it would take us. But when we got back, we were like, okay, everyone there was so supportive. We had so many people encouraging us to keep pursuing it that we knew that we had something we could turn into a business. And so we decided to take that transition from it maybe just being a project that we were working on in school to becoming a full-time business. And so since then, we've actually entered about 20 different business plan competitions to secure the funding necessary to get our product up and going and to get the business started and continue growing from there. And have those business competitions fully funded the the start of the company? Yeah. So that's where all of our revenue has come from. I would say we've probably raised about $120,000 um, in cash and resources from the various competitions that we've entered. So we've been really fortunate. Um, been pretty successful at being able to tell our story and convince people that what we're doing is something that's pretty important and we're trying to tackle that big world problem. That is fantastic. I mean, how many people are sitting out there with, well, I have a good business idea, but nobody will give me money. I mean, you guys just went out and found it and won it and, and earned every dollar yeah. without giving up any equity. That is really cool. So what, what year was that first competition? So it was actually, we started in September of 2014, but we went to Portugal in February of 2015. Okay. And then so and then you all graduated what the 2015 or 2016? So one of our co-founders graduated in 2016. I actually just finished up school on Saturday. So Saturday was my graduation. Congrats. Um, thank you. And then another one of our co-founders will finish up in December. And um, the fourth co-founder, he actually had a previous degree from 2012 at Iowa State. He was just back doing um, a few more classes and interested in the Global Resource Systems Program. So at what point did you all say to each other, no, this is what we're going to do after we graduate, whether, you know, we're going to go out, we're going to win as many business plan competitions as we can. Um, and, and this is, we're going to make a go at this. When did you decide that? I honestly think um, that transition happened when we came back from Portugal and just the success of the business plan competitions. It really spurred us to keep going and it provided that momentum for us to realize that if we put in the time and the hard work now, it could turn into full-time positions and full-time work after graduation. Um, obviously, right now, we're still kind of in that startup stage where there aren't full-time positions. So a lot of us have part-time jobs, but this is definitely a priority for us. And we're putting in as much time and effort as we can to make sure it's continuing to grow and we can afford ourselves that opportunity in maybe a year or two years down the road. 
Wow. Making it happen. That is so awesome. How did you decide what countries to focus on? Was it based on need or just places? I noticed on your website, every one of the co-founders has visited more countries than I have. Um, <laughs> so how did you decide which countries to, to focus on initially? Yeah. So it was pretty fortunate for us. So the program we were in at Iowa State University, they actually have a NGO that they started in Uganda. So that was actually our first field testing location. So it was a center for sustainable rural livelihoods and they do health and nutrition education centers. And so two of the co-founders, Elise and Ella, actually had the opportunity to go and oversee that in-country field testing and get that initial feedback that we needed to modify our designs, continue improving and making sure we were meeting the needs of our end users. And so from there, it's just been a lot of organic growth and just people reaching out and being like, oh, this is who you should talk to, or I know this organization that does work in this country. And so it's not necessarily, oh, we want to go to this country and try to implement units, but it's been a lot more of people reaching out and connections that we make at various events, um, conferences, things like that. And then we kind of take it from there and figure out, is it feasible for us to get units there? How can we continue to grow this partnership with this organization and keep growing? Michaela, what's been the hardest part of this entrepreneurial journey for, for you and, and your team? I think that I would have to say one of the hardest things was actually the product development. So when we started, none of us were engineer students. None of us had a background in food science. Um, engineering product development or anything like that. And thankfully, we were at a university where we did have resources on campus. But I think it was kind of that split where we had a lot of people who were very supportive and a lot of people who told us, okay, you guys aren't going to make this work. You can't do it. You don't have the expertise or the knowledge base. And so when we started, we were able to rely a lot on friends and families who had wood shops or machine shops. And so we built the first few prototypes by ourselves. And honestly, they were pretty ugly, but they, they worked. And so there was one day that we actually took our idea in to talk to an engineering professor on campus. And he started going through all of this math and all of these equations for exactly why our technology wasn't going to work because it didn't fit the exact mold that they had or the exact path that they were used to in engineering. And so I think we all left that meeting feeling really discouraged and not knowing like, okay, maybe this actually isn't working as well as we thought it was. But when we were, I guess, able to kind of reflect back on that moment and realize, no, we have a product that does work. We've tested it. We know it works and we've taken it in country and it fits their needs. So I think that in-country field testing really provided us that validation that we needed to kind of keep moving forward. Even though we have critics here in the United States, I think a lot of that kind of stems from not understanding what it's actually like in developing countries and understanding how to work in communities there. It's not like the product you're introducing, it doesn't have to be pretty. People don't care what it looks like. It really just matters if it works and if it's going to improve what they're already doing and save them time down the road. And so that was a lesson that we had to learn and really take away that as much as we want things to look really pretty and um, have that brand image, it really just needs to function. Without the any engineering background, knowing that, okay, you want to tackle this problem of food waste and you think dehydration is one one way to do that. What gave you the confidence 
to even develop the first prototype? I mean, even before that professor kind of shot down your model, like what made you think, okay, you know, here we're going to, we're going to create sort of a transparent uh, solar generated dehydrator. I mean, uh, what, what kind of gave you the idea that this might work at all? I, I think it was just the fact that we were all so naive about the process. And I think in a lot of times when you're starting something, being naive and not having the expertise actually is a really great advantage that you have. And so I remember the first few brainstorming sessions that we had working on our product and thinking about dehydration. And Clayton actually came in and was like, guys, I have this really great idea. And I know that we can do it because I found it on Pinterest. But basically, it was this pizza box that someone had turned into a food dehydrator. And we were like, okay, well, if someone can do it with a pizza box, surely we can do something and actually construct it and build it. And thankfully, we had a lot of friends and family who had backgrounds in woodworking and machinery that we didn't have to necessarily do all of the construction work ourselves. The first three prototypes we built, though, we did do some of the construction work, and we found out that none of us are really great at construction, and we should not be allowed to use power tools. Um, but we figured out how we could use our resources, and eventually we got in touch with a local manufacturer and transitioned away from the plywood and plexiglass models into the full plastic ones that you see on our website today. So cool. So now you've got this money from business plan competitions. Are you still going to more competitions? We've done a few here, but we've really kind of shifted our focus from business plan competitions to sales and how we can continue to grow and reach out to new partnerships, new organizations, and continue moving forward as a business. And how's that been? I mean, are these NGOs uh, that you're targeting, are they receptive to it? Have they been looking for something like this? Or how difficult is that process to acquire new customers? It's, it's not necessarily a difficult process, but I would say it's just a slower process because it's not like we're trying to sell a consumer product, but it's something that you kind of do have to go in country and demonstrate that it works and get the local community on board. So when we typically reach out to an organization, we like to send one to two units for them to field test. They can take it to the country and the community that they're working in. They can see what the community feedback is. They can see how the dehydration process works, what that time span is. And then we get a lot of that data and feedback back so that we can continually keep it improving. Um, we can find out those new products that they're dehydrating and just continue to grow that database of knowledge that we have. And then from there, if everything goes well, they'll typically come back and want to purchase more units to take on their next trip. So it's typically about a year to 18 months process before we see those larger orders going through. But I think that's okay because in a lot of development projects, it is a much slower process. And for us, just knowing that we're getting a few units out there and it's the opportunity for there to be more and we can see that impact that we have on each family that we send a unit to, I think that's a pretty cool process. Have you all been able to collect enough sort of data on, on the units that have gone out to feel like you've proven the concept or you, you've got data to prove the effectiveness? Yeah, I think that we do. So today we actually have units in 18 different countries hmm. um, from South America, Central America to Africa to Asia. And we've all had the opportunity to go and oversee that field testing process. So I was actually able to go to Thailand in December and work with rural communities there and introduce the technology. Uh, and it was really great just getting all of that feedback from the local farmers and the community leaders and seeing that 
they also saw the advantages of this technology and how it could improve the methods and just overall their livelihoods. And so I think we've really validated our product and now it's just figuring out how do we get to that scaling point. Right. And as you're scaling, are you already thinking about the next products to to work towards your mission of, of decreasing food waste? Yeah, we actually are. So we're in research and development stages of another food dehydrator. And so this dehydrator is designed for much more urban environments and cooler climates. Because while we were working on our first product, the Kinosol Arenda, we had a lot of friends and family reaching out saying that they also wanted the technology because they themselves had a lot of food waste. I think you see the difference between developing countries and here in the United States is that food waste occurs on different levels. So in develop, developing countries, it's the producer level. You see it much more in the farm, in the household. But here in the U.S., it's much more on the consumer level. It's I went to the grocery store, I bought too many fruits and vegetables for the week, and Sunday night rolls around and I throw them all away. So by we're hoping that we can create a technology that people can set out on their balconies, their roof, um, their backyard, that they could um, just take those fruits and vegetables, whether it's bananas, apples, tomatoes, and they could just throw them in the dehydrator before they went to work. And by the time they came back at the end of the day, they could have a dehydrated snack. And so cutting down on that consumer food waste it would have huge impacts both economically and environmentally just because people are going to be able to save a lot more money because I think it's really easy to throw away food and not realize how much of a cost it actually is. But the average person is wasting about $1,000 on food that they're throwing out every year. And so it definitely adds up. And then that food that we're throwing out has huge impacts on landfills and in terms of greenhouse gas production and all of that. And so it's it's really simple to not think about it because it doesn't directly affect your life um, unless – I mean it does economically, but most people don't realize it. Right. And so this will be – yeah, this would be an alternative and provide a solution for those people who maybe are environmentally conscious or they want something that's healthier than what's at the grocery store. Um, and they want to reduce that um, footprint that they have on the earth. So we're hoping that that will be available in 2018. Great. As you think about the future of agriculture, I mean, you've got your whole career ahead of you here. What what has you most excited about working in this industry? I think it's just really interesting to see how over the past year or so we've seen this shift towards people becoming more aware of food waste. Uh, we've seen the ugly fruit movement. We've seen um, grocery stores now offering ugly fruit or providing grocery stores that allow people to come in and spend as much as they can afford to purchase fresh fruits and vegetables, which maybe aren't available in a lot of those food deserts um, that we might see. But it's really cool how people are now shifting towards not just necessarily increasing production, but how can we like redistribute and what can we do with the food that's already being produced um, so that it has the greatest impact. Awesome. Well, Michaela Sullivan, I really appreciate uh, you being on the show. I think it's very exciting what you all are doing with Kinosol. If people want to uh, check out the website online or get connected with you and your cause, how can they do that? Yeah, I would say just uh, search. It's getkinosol.com. Otherwise, we're pretty active on all of our social media channels. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn. Um, we, you can also search for our hashtag. We use the hashtag save the third for saving the third of food that's being wasted and also food for all. So um, check us out on social media or search our website. Great. And we'll put the links for all of that in the show notes. It's K-I-N-O-S-O-L, right? Correct. All right. Thank you so much, Michaela.
Yeah, thanks, Tim. I hope you enjoyed that interview as much as I did. It really brings together a lot of the themes we talk about here on the podcast, which is new ventures, new ideas, uh, new technologies that are really impacting not only the business of agriculture, but really tackling social problems. Agriculture has always existed to solve our most basic needs and our most complex problems, dealing with primarily food, shelter, and clothing. Kinesol is continuing to find pain points in those areas and solve those problems. So very fascinating. I encourage you to check them out and support them however you possibly can. Another great uh, review here on the podcast. It says insightful. Look forward to this every week. And that is by, uh, I'm just reading here, none other than Mariah Carey in the shower. So, so there's that. Um, I'm sure that's probably one of my fellow buddies on the the Farmer Rural Ag Network that left that one because it's just uh, bizarre enough to be from either Wendell or Rob, I'm sure. But anyway, uh, thank you for, for all of you who have taken 30 seconds uh, to leave a rating and review for this podcast. It definitely does offer the social proof we need so that others will tune in to find out about the exciting things happening in agriculture and agribusiness. We're going to be back next week to continue this mini-series on ag education. As always, I really appreciate your download and join the community by uh, conversing either on Twitter at Tim Hammerich or um, even on Facebook. We have a thriving group called Ag Grad Nation. We'd love to have you join. See you next week. Thank you for listening to the Future of Agriculture podcast with Tim Hammerich. Visit aggrad.com, that's A-G-G-R-A-D.com today to get connected into careers in the agriculture industry. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week.